0: City, WLCC, Brandon,
1: Faith Talk Tampa, download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
2: Almost everyone familiar with the Bible, whether they believe the Bible or not, almost everyone familiar with the Bible knows that God's word, the Bible commands us to love one another. That's just a given. Almost everybody knows that. And yet it's an area that most Christians struggle in. Almost every Christian that I've known, somewhere along their lives, in their spiritual walk, has struggled over the command to love one another. Sometimes because we don't understand what it's saying. It's not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. If you wait till you felt like doing something, you'd probably never do anything that's constructive. And love doesn't mean that I like everybody. But what does it mean? Well, first of all, let's look at this. It appears from this verse that the Hebrews were struggling somewhat, or they were being challenged in their own hearts about loving one another. Because notice, the verse doesn't just say, love the brethren. They were doing that. It says, let love of the brethren what? Continue.
1: Welcome to Verse by Verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are starting a new series titled, Biblical Instructions for Godly Living. As you have probably guessed, Pastor Steve is going to start with Brotherly Love. This series is taken from Hebrews, so if you're able to follow along in your Bible, please turn to chapter 13 as we look at verses 1 through 4. Uh, Several questions come to mind as we get ready to jump into today's program. Why is it important to love? Why is it significant? Why does the Bible say so much about this? And where is it practical in our lives? Pastor Steve will be exploring those questions in the first few lessons, and I believe that we will learn a lot from God's Word. Let's get into today's program. Here is Pastor Steve Kreloff.
2: Sometimes words that we either hear or read don't seem to fit. Have you ever had that experience? You read something that doesn't seem to fit or appear appropriate. There's a magazine called the Columbia Journalism Review, and they have collected newspaper headlines from around the country of words that don't fit either. Grammatical goofs and double entendres that just don't seem to come out right. For example... From the ledger in Glendale, California, comes this headline, Governor Brown gives in orders spaying to end fly infestation. They meant spraying. Just want you to know, I mean, so you're with me. From Blackwood, Idaho, from the news there, this headline, Two Soviet ships collide, one dies. don't oh, no, which ship died? From Newsday, now you're catching it. Okay, the White House kills fundraiser after complaints about tactics. That poor guy. (laughs) From the Community Journal out of Cincinnati, Ohio, comes this headline, Criminally Insane Bill Passes. How do you have a bill that's insane? I think this is my favorite, personally, from the Toronto Star, Stiff Opposition Expected to Casketless Funeral Plan. Think about that one for a moment. From Rutland Herald in Vermont, this headline, seven road deaths in Vermont, but good times abound everywhere. Tasteless, (laughs) tasteless, but it came out. From the Ogden Standard Examiner out of Utah, this headline, survivor of Siamese twins joins parents. It's a strange (laughs) play on words there. And from the Imperial Valley Press in El Centro, California, This headline appeared, Iraqi Head Seeks Arms. I think that's a political (laughs) statement, but it didn't come out quite that way. These, and there are more, but I'll spare you them. These are just a few examples of words that uh, just don't seem to fit or be appropriate. And you know what? Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we think that God's words are like that. They don't seem to fit. Verses appear to be disjointed and verses and words seem disconnected. And we wonder, how does this fit together? And we wonder how we should make sense out of these words. And one of those places in Scripture that just doesn't seem to look like it fits is Hebrews chapter 13. So I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll read verses 1 through 4 for you, and you'll see what I mean. "'Let love of the brethren continue.'" Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God, will judge. Now, for 12 chapters, if you've been following with us, you know this. And if not, I'll help you to understand this. For 12 chapters, the writer to the Hebrews has presented a very clear and a very logical and spiritual argument that Jesus Christ is superior to anything that these people encountered in Judaism. Jesus is better than any element of Judaism. Over and over again, the writer by using Old Testament scripture and New Testament theology and sanctified common sense, has proven his case that Jesus is better than all the elements of Judaism. They were elementary, they were kindergarten, but Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is superior. And then he closed his many arguments with a final warning to those in the church who are identified with believers but were not believers. They had not yet come to embrace Jesus Christ. They perhaps mentally had acknowledged Christ. Intellectually, they believed, but they had never placed their trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. And He warned them that they are in grave danger of eternal judgment. And remember, we saw this. He gave this warning by placing two mountains side by side. Mount Sinai, which represents the law, and Mount Zion, which represents grace. And he placed them side by side, and he said, compare, compare, look at the law. Do you want to go back to the law? The law was bondage. The law was something that simply revealed your sin. It couldn't save you. But look at the glories God has for those who come to Christ. Would you reject Jesus Christ for law, for a covenant of really death? If you do that, eternal judgment awaits you. After knowing all of this, if you reject the truth, you are an apostate. If at the highest level of enlightenment you reject the truth, you will apostatize and there is no hope for you. You will be like Esau, who though he sought the blessing with tears, never got it. But now when we come to chapter 13, we're not on Mount Zion. We're not in the glories of heaven, but instead we're discussing such everyday topics as love and hospitality and people in prison and marriage. And next week we'll look at another subject, contentment. Why? Is this disjointed? Is this just like those headlines that don't seem to fit? No. And here's how the letter fits together. Chapters 1 through 10, in those chapters the foundation was laid. It settled the issue of Christ's superiority. And then in chapters 11 and 12, the writer moved on. He told them how to live by faith. Those who knew Christ, know Christ as Lord and as Savior, need to know how to live by faith. Because these people were undergoing persecution. And we are to walk by faith. And he tells them, in essence, don't quit. You are to persevere. You need endurance. Run the race. Run the marathon of the Christian life. But now in this closing chapter, and chapter 13 closes the letter... He gives them and us, by way of application, some very practical exhortations on how to apply their faith to the everyday issues of life facing them. That's how this, though it looks disjointed, it's really not. In other words, true faith must be lived out where we spend our time in our daily lives. Faith is practical and it affects every area and the ordinary and common areas of life and that's where chapter 13 comes in it may look disjointed it may look like it doesn't connect but it really does the writer in essence is saying look if you have faith and you are enduring here's where you need to apply your faith here's where we run the race It isn't just that you don't walk away from Christ. It isn't something that you just don't do. It's something that you do do. And so what are we told to do? This morning, we want to see how our faith affects the way we live out the Bible's command to love one another, to love fellow Christians. In verse 1, the writer gives the overruling and overarching exhortation to love the brethren. Notice he says, verse 1, "...let love of the brethren continue." Let love of the brethren continue. Very simple, very clear. And the rest of these verses are connected to that. Because in the next few verses, he spells out three ways that we should demonstrate loving the brethren. Loving the brethren. We love strangers through hospitality, and he'll go on and we'll see that. And so these things connect. We love prisoners through compassion, and he explains that. And we love our marriage partners through purity, and that's what these verses are about. Now This applies to us in very practical ways. It's helpful. It is extremely realistic, so pay careful attention. However, before looking at these areas, we need to understand verse 1 and what it means. It says, let love of the brethren continue. Almost everyone familiar with the Bible, whether they believe the Bible or not, almost everyone familiar with the Bible knows that God's word, the Bible, commands us to love one another. That's just a given. Almost everybody knows that. And yet it's an area that most Christians struggle in. Almost every Christian that I've known, somewhere along their lives in their spiritual walk, has struggled over the command to love one another, sometimes because we don't understand what it's saying. It's not a feeling Love is not a feeling. If you wait till you felt like doing something, you'd probably never do anything that's constructive. And love doesn't mean that I like everybody. But What does it mean? Well, first of all, let's look at this. It appears from this verse that the Hebrews were struggling somewhat or they were being challenged in their own hearts about loving one another. Because notice, the verse doesn't just say love the brethren. They were doing that. It says, let love of the brethren what? continue. So there must have been some type of threat going on. In other words, the writer is saying, you once demonstrated love, and I'm telling you that even though it's being threatened now, make sure it continues. He wants them to continue what they have been doing, and what had they been doing. Chapter 6 of this letter tells us, chapter 6, verse 10, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So they were loving the brethren. The writer simply says, hey, keep it up. And then in chapter 10, verse 24, he said, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So we take it that there was that going on. And the writer just comes along and says, continue it. You have been loving. Now don't let anything stop that. And what would stop it? Keep in mind who these people were. They were Jewish people being persecuted and going through awfully hard times. They were persecuted for their faith. And what is the tendency that we all have in times of persecution, in times of stress and pressure? To think about ourselves, to be preoccupied with us. And so these Hebrews may have been, it appears, that they may have been in the process of developing a mentality of thinking only about themselves and turning inward rather than outward, and as the persecution would get more difficult, there would be that greater tendency to think only about themselves, hence the command to let brotherly love continue. Now, who are the brethren? Who are the brethren that we're to love? The expression brethren or brotherly love comes from the Greek word Philadelphia which means the city of brotherly love. Don't believe that in going there to our modern-day city of Philadelphia, but that's what it means, the city of brotherly love. The Greek word is what we call a compound word. It's made up of two separate words, phileo, which means to have a great affection for, and then it's adelphos, which means brother. So when you put this together, literally the word means this, to have a great affection for those who are brothers and sisters. In the history of this word, it really meant coming from the same womb, coming from the same womb. Now, that not only is true in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm, because here's the point, and we need to realize this, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have become brothers and sisters, not physically, but even in a more significant way, spiritually. We really are part of one family, because we have become the family of God. We've been born again Born into what? Born into another family in which God is our Father. Not only that, not only have we been born again and we've been given the same nature, new nature, the divine nature, but also we have been adopted as sons, which means we have full inheritance rights. and Therefore, we are brethren. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 spells this out. We are family. Hebrews 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Our Lord calls us brethren. We're family. And the point is this. Keep this in mind. The point is not that we are to love each other as if we were brothers and sisters. The writer is not saying, hey, you are to love one another as if they're your brother and sister. Now, that's not true. No, the point is this, that we are to love one another because we are brothers and sisters, not as if. We're not making up anything. We're just saying we are brethren. Now we are to love that way. Now, why is it important to love? Why is it significant? Why does the Bible say so much about this? And where is it practical in our lives? First of all, loving the brethren is important. That's not to say, by the way, that we're not to love those who are not the brethren, but we have a special place in our hearts for God's people. The world hates believers. We love believers, but we are to love all. Why is it so important for us to love fellow Christians? Number one, because it pleases God. If you want to please God and delight his heart, you love. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. You have children. Do you hate it when your children fight and don't get along? Sure you do. You can't stand that. You want your children to get along. Well, God's heart is just like that. If brethren fight, if his children fight and don't have unity, that disturbs him. So the opposite is true. It pleases God when his children love one another, just as it pleases you. Secondly, we love one another. It's important because it communicates to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. How does the world know that you're a Christian? Well, John chapter 13 tells us, In John chapter 13, Jesus laid it out very clear for his disciples, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But he didn't stop there. He said, by this, by what? By love. Will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another? The world has a legitimate right to hold us up to the standards of this truth. Our love testifies to the world that we belong to the One who demonstrated the greatest love by the greatest sacrifice. The world has a legitimate right to say you are not a Christian because you are not loving your fellow Christians. As Francis Schaeffer said, love is the mark of the Christian. There's a third reason why this is important. It not only communicates to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ, it communicates to your own heart that you belong to Christ. It is one of the means by which God gives assurance of salvation. Now, some of us may struggle about assurance of salvation. You don't need to. You can know that you have eternal life. And one of the ways that we know that we have eternal life is because we have, first of all, a desire to love the brethren. Secondly, an attitude of love for the brethren. And then from that desire and attitude flows tangible ways in which we do care for the brethren. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know that you've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life? How do you know that you're really a Christian? How do you know that you have legitimate, genuine faith? Well, John says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Hey, that's supernatural to love God's people. Nobody else does. The world hates the believer. We love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. No matter what you say, if you don't have any love in your heart for God's people you abide in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So sacrificing, ministering, doesn't mean that we die for one another, although that's possible, but that's not what this verse is really teaching. We lay down our own desires, our own inclinations in order to put others first. It's esteeming one another more important. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you see somebody in need and it's a legitimate need and you have the resources to help them and you just say, I'll pray about it, or you don't even go that far. The Bible says, how does the love of God dwell in you? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say, we'll bring it to the prayer meeting. If you have the resources, and some of us don't, but if you have the resources, then you minister and you help. So that's very important. So we are to love one another, and we must continue, the Bible says, Hebrews 13, to show love. Even when we have our own headaches and our own troubles, we are still to love. And in the next three verses of Hebrews chapter 13, we're told some very tangible and practical ways we should demonstrate this love. So I'd encourage you to take notes. This is going to be very helpful for you if you apply it. We demonstrate brotherly love, first of all, by loving strangers through hospitality. Verse 2 says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Let's stop there for a moment. I know the verse goes on, but it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. One tangible way to love people, and especially fellow Christians, is through hospitality, which means the love of strangers. And just a few weeks ago, we went over this, so I won't spend as much time dealing with this subject as I would have. The love of strangers. Now, brethren who are strangers to us should be treated as family. They may be strangers to you, but they're still family. When you meet some long-lost relative, you treat them as a long-lost relative. You didn't know them, but now you met them, and you are to treat them as if you knew them very well. That's what this is saying. Now, I told you a few weeks ago why this was important, and let me reiterate this. In the ancient world, traveling was not easy for Christians, and they did move around as they witnessed, as they had business in other parts of the Roman Empire. It was a very difficult thing to do because usually The public inns were not safe, and they were generally morally offensive to believers. They were also expensive, they were not very clean, and they were just not pleasant places to stay. And as Christians traveled around the Roman Empire, they were to be treated with love by their fellow believers. And how should their fellow believers treat them with love? By hospitality, by opening their homes, by saying, here, you can stay with us. Now, we need to do this. It's a command. If you don't obey this command, you are sinning. It's a command. But we want to be very honest here, very frank, because the same question that comes to your mind, I believe, came to their mind. And it's this. But these people are strangers to me. I don't know them. What if they take advantage of our family's kindness? Isn't that what often keeps us from hospitality? What if they take advantage? Here, I want to be nice to somebody. I want to reach out. What if they exploit me? And, you know, that's a very valid question. It's a good question. It's a genuine concern. It was for them in the ancient world. It's a genuine concern for us today. Because there are people who take advantage of Christian love. They just want to really sponge off of you and... If you're going to love, if you're going to obey God's word, you do make yourself rather vulnerable to this sort of thing. And there are people who would take advantage. And I'll even take it a step further. Everyone who is willing to love people, to love someone, eventually gets taken advantage of. You might as well just say it's inevitable. You will be taken advantage of. Everyone who has ever said, I will love and does something, somewhere along the line, gets taken It's inevitable. So what do you do? Well, first of all, don't be naive or fail to use common sense where you see it's coming. But we often don't see it coming. So what do you do? You continue to love. You just love anyway. Because God's word tells you to love. And if somebody exploits you, and you will somewhere along the way, God will still honor your love and he'll deal with that person who exploited you. Don't worry about them. You are to still obey the Word of God, even if they take advantage of you. The early church, that was very important. Hospitality was a major issue, and it still is, even though we have places for people to stay today as they travel. In fact, a man cannot be an elder unless he's hospitable. It's an extreme virtue. It's a high virtue. First Timothy 3, two speaks about that. There were widows in the early church who could only receive help from the church if they had shown hospitality to others. If they did not show hospitality to strangers, love for strangers, then they could not be taken care of because they would not demonstrate godliness. That was one proof of godliness.
1: Pastor Steve spent a fair amount of time today talking about hospitality. Anytime hospitality is being considered, especially if it is with someone you don't know or don't know very well, this question might come to mind. What if they take advantage of me? Pastor Steve gave some very biblical advice when contemplating hospitality, and I hope that was an encouragement to you. Of course, Pastor Steve is going to talk more about hospitality and how that integrates with brotherly love on our next verse-by-verse program. For those of you in the Clearwater, Florida area, you have a standing invitation to worship at the Lakeside Community Chapel, where you'll hear more great preaching from Pastor Steve Kreloff. If you would like more information about Lakeside, please surf over to lakesidechapel.com where you'll find the location and service times as well as other information about Lakeside. I certainly hope you can join us tomorrow as we continue with our series, Biblical Instructions for Godly Living.